This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to the Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our topic today is probably one you may have never even thought about, and it is the topic of ministry in a context of orality. In other words, ministry in contexts where people do not read or write. And how do we do this? Is that a is that a fair summation? I of, think so. Yeah. Okay. So my guest is Ted Crump. He's deve- uh, director of development for Spoken Worldwide, which is a ministry that is um, uh, focused on these kinds of contexts. And my first question is one I always ask every guest: What's a nice guy like you doing in a gig like this? Well, it's a great question. I. Uh you know, I initially came to DTS. I've, I graduated from here last year with my THM. Okay. Initially came here from the mission field, uh, anticipating entering into local church ministry. Okay. Um, I knew I needed to be trained and equipped and, and wanted more theological education and backing and totally expected to use that as a pastor someday. And uh, boy, there just weren't a whole lot of pastoral roles available mm-hmm. at the time that I was graduating. Hmm. The height of COVID and everything else. Um, and uh, the Lord had it... Um, had a funny way of placing me uh, at Spoken, which I initially was a little bit reluctant to pursue because I'd come from the mission field and Mm -hmm. I really was wanting to focus more on the local church. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's been incredible to me the way that uh, I've been able to use both my experiences on the mission field and the training and education I received at DTS to kind of merge those two things together and and advocate for oral people groups uh, through Spoken. Interesting. So so how did you get connected to Spoken in particular? I mean, that well, so the, the CEO of Spoken is a, a gentleman by the name of Ed Weaver. He's over at Northway Church, okay. my church, Eastside Community Church, planted from Northway a few years back. Okay. Um, I've, I had met Ed a couple of times before, and I was actually entering, interviewing excuse me, for a position at Northway, a mm-hmm. pastoral position at Northway, um, back a year ago, February. And Ed ushered me to my seat and said, uh, so what are you doing here? I said, well, you know, I'm interviewing for a position and uh, looking forward to hopefully being on staff here at some point soon. And, uh, and he said, you know, you should look into joining Spoken Worldwide. We got a lot of cool things going on. You should, I think you, with your experience, you'd be great for that role. <laughs> and uh, I initially kind of brushed it off. Um, the, the interview process ran its course and I found myself in the summer about to graduate. And I thought, goodness, I've got no opportunities on the table. I got a wife and two kids. I need to find a job. Uh, and I thought, you know, maybe I should give Spoken a call. And so I, I circled back and uh, it's been phenomenal. So you ended up at Spoken because you needed eggs on the table that's in the morning, right? right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, wow. So so tell us about Spoken. What do they do? What do, they do? Um, what do you, and, and if you're director of development, I don't think this is a hard question for you. Yeah, so. <laughs> for sure. Well, Spoken Worldwide exclusively ministers to the two-thirds of the world's population that, that are oral communicators, okay. or oral learners, which means that they either cannot or do not read. Okay. Um, and so that's our mission. And, and so much, there's been so much great work done from missions agencies 
um, in the past, really since, uh, you know, over the years to evangelize and disciple um, people from across all cultures. Mm-hmm. Uh, but our tendency as Westerners to focus on text-based materials, whether it be Bible translation or curriculum, has uh, unintentionally overlooked a majority of the world's population that, that either cannot or do not read. And mm. so Spoken uh, attempts to uh, communicate God's truth with, with these groups in a way that resonates with them, in a way that they can understand and respond to, in a way that's engaging, um, that helps them come to know uh, the Lord as their Savior and, and will hopefully uh, bear fruit in their respective regions where they're living and, and working. Well, this raises all kinds of questions in the back of my mind, so we'll just start through the list. Um, and that is, um, so how do you minister to someone to whom you can't hand a tract or a text or whatever? How does that work? Well, it's it's a it's a challenging concept for sure. The three primary ways that we go about doing it are through oral Bible translation, mm-hmm. um, pastoral development, which is essentially just our fancy way of saying discipleship. It's a mm-hmm. discipleship making movement, and then coaching, which is helping train other ministries that are doing effective uh, ministry in, in various regions around the world to utilize some of the same techniques of inorality that we've um, come to to learn and 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 use uh, to minister effectively amongst people who who can't or don't read. Hmm. And so our oral Bible translation um, team is a group of ex-Bible consult- translation consultants for Wycliffe and a bunch of different organizations who've who've caught, vis- uh, caught wind of the vision and um, have gotten excited about what it is that we're doing uh, and have, have decided that they want to make the rest of their lives about translating the Bible orally for people who otherwise would have no way of hearing the gospel. Mm-hmm. Our pastoral development teams are intended to raise up indigenous leaders and teach them and train them uh, in stories, songs, dramas, proverbs, poetry, generally the same types of communication methods that they already employ day to day in their in their communications with their friends and family because it's just a part of their culture Mm -hmm. Um, using those uh, forms. Uh, with gospel-centered truth to be able to impact them in ways that that hopefully will bring about a life change um, and uh, and salvation. Hmm. So um, so 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 let's ass- uh, so I could just get up. Well, let me ask you this question first. So, what parts of the world do you all work in? Where where are we exactly? We've got quite of- a few. Um, we're working in northern Ghana, northern Nigeria. We've got some in northern and southern Egypt, mm-hmm. Sudan, Ethiopia. Northern India, Myanmar, um, those are the ones off the top of my mind that I can think of in terms of... So Africa and Asia. Correct. Yeah. In terms of Bible translation and uh, um, in terms of Bible translation and pastoral development, um, looking to expand more into Middle East, North Africa um, as relationships are cultivated and, and things develop there. Um, just started a Bible translation project in Brazil. Uh, amongst a people group there. So there's a handful of different spots that we work, um, but we're predominantly, I would say we're predominantly in Africa and South and Southeast Asia. So, um, I mean, there are kind of, again, there are all kinds of questions. Does this, I I take it that the oral translation has got to be indigenous based to some degree. In other words, people within the countries that you're talking about who know the languages that you're talking about. So so there's a two-step training, right? There's the train. Well, there's a one-step training with those people, and then those people are ministering to the people in their region. Is that is that basically how it works? So Correct. I'm not going to walk off the boat uh, for um, for uh, Spoken Worldwide and start ministering. I'm going to minister to someone who has training, has background, that kind of thing, Correct. and is interested in going to these areas. Yes, and, and I would say... Um, 
part of the reason why, you know, to kind of to circle back to your original question, how did I get excited about Spoken? I initially was reluctant to join up, but when I started learning more about Spoken, I became really excited about our methodology because mm-hmm. our methodology is all about training and equipping and empowering indigenous leaders to carry on the work themselves. Mm-hmm. And as uh, my wife and I, prior to coming to DTS, had served in Southern Africa for about four and a half years mm. as missionaries there. And one of the things that I, I became uh, acutely aware of during that time was that I was, I was not near as effective at ministering as a faithful Swazi person might have been. Sure. And the Swazi, that's where we lived was Eswatini, which is made up of the Swazi tribe. Hmm. And so as you can empower and enable um, uh, a, a, an indigenous leader to carry the gospel forward, there's going to be a movement unlike one that I could produce. And so yeah. that's much of Spoken's methodology. And so when it comes to translation practices, um, we are finding people, faithful people within the context in which we serve who want to come on board with what it is that we're doing. Our translation consultants will then teach them the basics of, of Bible translation. There will be a consultant um, process at the be- consultation process at the beginning of the translation where all this is taught and learned, and then the translation will, will progress. And our, our, our consultants who live here in the States will travel periodically to those locations to check in on how the process is going. And there's often back translation that will occur just to make sure that the authenticity and integrity of the text is being maintained hmm. in the process of translation um, amongst indigenous people. So so you said you you were in, in the southern part of Africa. The name of the place where you were again? Well, it's formerly known as Swaziland, okay. the kingdom of Swaziland. They, since we left, they changed the name to Eswatini. Okay. Because I go on, I don't think I've ever heard <laughs> <Yeah>. that before. <laughs> Small landlocked country in between South Africa and Mozambique. Okay. I've been to South Africa multiple times. Mm-hmm. So um, that's why it fascinated me to hear where you were. Um, so so very. I take it a very different ministry than what you had there. Yes, very. Very much so. Mm-hmm. So 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 I so I get off, I get off the vote and go there and help train someone. Is that would would that be the role that I would have if I were to be a part of of Spoken Worldwide or or a decide? We have uh, directors and, and consultants over over oral Bible translation. We also have them over pastoral development to meet with indigenous leaders and encourage them. Um, and share and and teach and train and equip them how to use story, songs, and drama to communicate uh, gospel truth with their um, their respective communities. And so, um, one of the ways that we do that, I we were in Egypt just a couple months ago to check in on a Bible translation project and a pastoral development project. And uh, the pastoral development was really fascinating because everybody would get in a room. And they would talk about the cultural issues that they had to overcome as believers in their in their nation, mm-hmm. and then uh, or in their culture. And then they would mark down all these these items, and then they they draw the list down to about two or three, and then they'd say, okay, which one's the very most important? Let's find a story from Scripture that can speak to that issue, and let's try to learn the story in a way that we can tell it naturally at the drop of a hat with mm. people around us. So really you're empowering people um, through the course of this pastoral development process. You're empowering people to use God's word in um, in context, in circumstances where where it's necessary to use it or beneficial to use it with people that, that you're already in community with. Um, and it was fascinating to see the level of dialogue and engagement that was taking place. And uh, as you might imagine, it was sometimes it felt heated. I think that probably... Uh, is due to the fact that oral cultures oftentimes are very animated in the way that they present their information because when you're trying to transmit or receive information, it's a benefit if you can't read or if you don't read 
to have voice inflection uh, or hand motions or things like that. And mm-hmm. so uh, a couple of times I turned to my coworkers and said, goodness, what's going on? I feel like there's a, a fight about to break out. But it was just people engaging over God's word and enjoying the dialogue and, and, and oftentimes the debate over uh, what specific texts were going to be used to uh, to um, to address in their respective communities. Now, I heard you drop a phrase in the midst of talking about this. I, I think I've heard stories, songs, and... Dramas. Dramas. Yes, sir. Okay. So, obviously, there's a, a, a kind of the way in in terms of how you get to the content that you're sharing orally. Um, talk about, well, talk first about the environment that you create to do that, and then talk about those three elements of what you do. Well, one of the things that's interesting about uh, our ministry is that most of the, like, for example, a lot of our Bible translation consultants have been missionaries on the field for long periods of time prior to us, um, prior to coming on board with Spoken. So a lot of them have pre-existing relationships in place with ministries and different leaders throughout the area. And so that's part of the way that we can go in and establish a relationship um, with people in country. And we we really don't uh, go anywhere that we're not sought out. Um, it's kind of goes, we don't want to go against the grain or try to swim upstream with people who are not eager to, uh, to receive what it is that we feel like we have to share. Um, so, so a lot of times these, these relationships in the places where we work have formed organically through ex- pre-existing relationships that we already have in place. And once that happens, we will, you know, we will take the individual, the indigenous person, we will have them, uh, find, leaders within their community that they believe might benefit from this training, mm-hmm. um, pull the community, bring the, bring the folks together. And then there will be kind of like an opportunity to pitch the, the, the program per se, the, the initiative to the individuals and then, and then start teaching them round one, round two, you know, throughout the course of the year, this, uh, pastoral development program, which spans the course of three years long. So mm. the pastoral development program is uniquely designed to, co- to cover three years. The first year we're only pulling material from the, the Pentateuch and the gospel narratives mm. so that, so that we're covering the arc of redemption. Mm-hmm. The second year we're looking only at the prophets and the past, uh, excuse me, the Pauline epistles. Mm-hmm. And then the third year, we're covering everything else. And there will be about 40 passages covered over the course of every calendar year, um, 10 of which are like some sort of community development, uh, maybe a story from their own culture that could be used to address a need that they have within their respective community. Hmm. Um, but the vast majority of those stories, 30 of the 40 would be gospel-centered um, p- stories pulled from scripture to speak specifically to those uh, communities. And a story would be shared retold, a story would then be shared incorrectly. The community that would then have the opportunity to correct the storyteller as he's telling the story to really prove the point that orality is not uh, prone to error. And right. I think a lot of people believe that it right. is. But when you can display to folks that it's not in, in the context of a community, right. and I think that's something that we miss as Westerners. We tend to believe that these stories are being shared one person to one person to one person, like the old telephone game. Right. That's not the case okay. because oral communities tend to be community, community focused and very collective in their orientation. Mm-hmm. They're not individualistic like we are. Mm-hmm. Um, so all these things are shared in community. There's a lot of dialogue in community um, in many ways, 
stories are remembered and locked in in ways that that people didn't even realize they could learn or understand a story um, because of the way that that we're sharing them, which is natural to the way that they communicate already. Interesting. So when they're meeting, are, are these meetings taking places in homes or in community contexts, or does it vary, or how does that work? It, it would vary depending on the location. Okay. When we were in Cairo a couple a uh, couple months ago, we were meeting in an upper room at a church. Mm-hmm. Um, there was another group down in the south of Cairo uh, in Aswan that would meet um, in a different location. And so it just kind of depends on the context of the community, what they're comfortable with. Um, it's highly contextualized for the respective community's needs. So the people who've, so I take it the sequence is there's a minister who's been ministering in an area. Uh, they already have these relationships. They go in, they're now equipped to uh, think about how to share these stories and pieces that they have. Uh, Does it happen spontaneously or do they arrange it? How how does that part of it work? A a little bit of both. Okay. Um, From my understanding, uh, there are times when when they can gather groups together and say, hey, let's have a discussion group. Let's talk about this story uh-huh. that I've heard um, from God's word. And and sometimes it's a group of, of people, believers who who might need discipling and the story is intended to help disciple them. Sometimes it's non-believers who, hmm. who are being introduced to gospel content for the first time. Uh, and it's it's a way to evangelize them and share with them uh, the true God that we we know and love and worship. Hmm. Interesting. So um, so so they so there's a program that's for the pastors that's helping them develop on the one hand. Correct. And then there's the and then there's the ministry to the orality group. Let's talk. You talked a little bit about this. This is actually has an overlap with the gospels and thinking about the fact that before the gospels were written, these were basically an oral culture that was passing on. You sometimes get the comparison that orality uh, involves uh, involves distortion because it gets passed on. You've mentioned the telephone game. It gets compared to that sometimes. And uh, I have a lecture that I do that say that's not how orality works in these communities. And that's that ignores an element of community oversight that comes into stories that they care about, et Correct. cetera, and, and, the, and the way the community itself is structured to preserve stuff that they want to remember. Right. Talk a little bit about that and what, what's involved in that. Well, so the interesting thing that I don't think we consider, those of us who are text-based Western in our thinking and our educational models don't consider as we think about uh, oral people groups or oral cultures is that really there are only two places where you can store information as an oral learner in your mind or the mind of your friends and your family. Mm-hmm. And so, so what happens is stories that, that you receive or communications that you receive that are important have to be shared with other people if you don't want to lose them. Mm-hmm. Because if you're trusting your own memory to remember them, which maybe it's good enough, um, there is some level at which you might fail and lose something altogether. And so, and given that these cultures are very community oriented in the first place, um, there is a sharing of information that we see amongst them that we wouldn't see in our cultures, hmm. uh, Western culture, text-based culture per se. And so, um, so oftentimes the stories are prioritized, traditions, heritage, you know, stories from their heritage, from their culture, and they're passed along from generation to generation uh, that way because they know that if they don't keep them in, the, in their minds and in the minds of their friends and families, they will die off and they will lose them at some point. Hmm. And so it's critically important for them if they want to maintain their heritage, maintain their culture, uh, which, which being a community-oriented um, culture to begin with, one that focuses very heavily on family, on uh, you know, village, on tribe, 
um, they're, they're very focused on making sure that these things are passed forward through the generations because they don't want to see what they've uh, come to know and love die off. Mm-hmm. So is there a mechanism that they have to do this to preserve these stories? I mean, obviously, it's sharing it among many people. One of the points I like to make about the Gospels is because the impression is you had the event and then someone remembers the story way, way, way down the line. Well, in fact, no, important stories are being told and retold all the time. Right. You're getting multiple presentations. You have multiple people who know the story. So how how, do, how does the how does the check work on on keeping the story the story, in terms of uh, main, maintaining its authenticity? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Well, I think these things again, kind of going back to the community concept. These things are shared in community. Um, they're engaged upon in community, and there's a sense in which. Um, if if the story is incorrect, it will be corrected by those in the community who know the story well, along with there those. are people who are regarded as kind of the yes. patriarchs of the story, if I can say it that way. Yes, and at some level, because so many of these cultures are are honor shame, mm-hmm. um, there's a great respect and an honor given to the authority figures within the elders within the community who have. Um, the ability to be able to speak into circumstances where stuff might be misunderstood. Um, and because things are being shared in a community context um, so often, you don't see uh, a whole lot of error amongst the traditions and the stories that are passed mm. from generation to generation. Hmm. I think it's something that people don't appreciate about the way orality works in cultures and the way in which uh, important stories are overseen, passed on. I'm, uh, I, I'm assuming, and I'll ask a question, I don't know if well, I'll ask it. I'm sure you've heard the name Kenneth Bailey. Does that name ring a bell to you? He's worked in gospel studies and that kind of it, thing. It does. I can't recall exactly where I've heard well, it. Well, he was a missionary who worked in, in oral cultures and Bedouin cultures in the mm-hmm. Middle East. Mm-hmm. And he is the one who has come up with this model of what he calls, um, uh, what is it, informal uh, but overseen orality. In other words, anyone can tell the story in the community. But if the story veers too too far off, there will be a correction, and the mm-hmm. and the community will hear the story properly. If I right. can say it that way, absolutely, yeah. And uh, you know, and it, I just had a thought, and it, I totally blanked on it. I'm sorry, about that. <laughs> it's no problem. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's it's a way of the the. Um, um, the the original model that came for New Testament studies was was called informal and uncontrolled. Mm-hmm. It's tied to Boltman, and that's where the telephone game illustration came from. And then the second model, which came out of rabbinics, was um, formal and controlled. Right, and and, uh, and it was very very precise. I mean, down to the word. The problem was is that when you compare the Gospels, you don't always get the, the same exact wording. You get some variation. Right. So so you get variation in gist. And so Kenneth Bailey said, I've been ministering to these Bedouin communities for years in the Middle East. Um, the, it's a pretty conservative oral tradition. In other words, they passed it on from generation to generation. And what I see is this gist variation part of the story, which is which means it's it's informal. Anyone can tell the story, but it's controlled. There are people overseeing how the story gets passed on in the community and making sure the core of the story remains uh, what it has been. Correct. And I think w- what I just remembered that I was thinking of was um, amongst oral cultures, there's also not, I think oftentimes because of the way that we've been trained, because of the way that we've learned, 
which has benefited us a great deal. I mean, I think about my experience here at DTS was phenomenal, and I'm certainly grateful for it. But it's but it's ingrained in me certain priorities in, in the way that I think and the way that I learn. Mm-hmm. Um, oral cultures are typically not as uh, concerned about some of the things that we are concerned about. For mm-hmm. example, chronology. Yes. Not a big deal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In fact, the the major emphasis amongst an oral culture would be the priority of 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 a certain story, not necessarily. I mean, I'm sorry the main thrust of a certain story, not necessarily the order in which the stories happen. That's right. That it happened is more important than yes. when it happened. Right. And yeah. also, the you know, you think about, um, you know, thinking back to the whole ipsissima verba, ipsissima yeah. vox thing, yeah, yeah. where we're talking about, are we talking about the voice of God? Or are we talking about the very words of God and recognizing that, you know, the words can vary just a little bit. And it's not to, to an oral culture, if the words are not exactly you know, if they're not verbatim the same, yeah, uh, it's not a huge deal, right? Because the overall um, emphasis, the overall thrust of what's being communicated is still getting through. Yep. And but once I, you start to, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Once you start to lose that thrust, is when there's the oversight that steps in and says, "No, that's not the story." Yeah, yeah. And and of course, there the the issue is is that I always have lots of ways that I can tell a story. I can I can cite it word for word. I can summarize it. I can paraphrase it, etc. Right. All those mixtures come in, and we actually when we hear stories in that kind of way. We don't react negatively necessarily to someone who's somewhere. The illustration I like to use is you've got the five minute uh, news report at the top of the hour, Mm -hmm. right? And you get, you know, you got two commercial breaks in there and you've got maybe, you know, two and a half, three minutes to do the news. So someone comes on and says, the president gave his state of the union message tonight. And then, and then we have the choice. We can play a little clip Right. That summarizes it. Right. Or we can say, you know, the president said X, Y, and Z. And and whether I quote the president X, Y, and Z or I summarize the president X, Y, and Z, as long as that is accurate, I don't have a problem with the way that's been done. For sure. And um, and and I think sometimes the gospels are working that way. And so what you're saying is, is that whether you're getting a verbatim or whether you're getting a summary, um, as long as the the core direction of the story is in line with what the story is and has been and what the story was, then you're then you won't be subject to c- correction. But if it does veer off too far, then a point will be made and the correction will be made. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's how it plays itself out in our pastoral development mm-hmm. discipleship program. And I should clarify that pastoral development program is is called pastoral development so that it uh, the intent there is to help people pastor in their respective communities, but it's not exclusively for pastors. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of folks who are just lay people within the respective community who would like to learn more and grow in their faith and understanding of God. And um, and they are certainly welcome to join us in that as well. Anybody who wants to faithfully serve their community, uh, but feels limited because they're unable to read, mm-hmm. we welcome them to come and join, uh, join us in the way that we're ministering so that they can be effective ministers of the gospel in the way that they believe God's called them to. Okay, that that takes me to where I wanted to go next. So this is great, and that is so. So uh, one of your pastors who you've trained walks into a community, begins to communicate and share with them. There's an interest. Um, the interest connects, if I can say it that way, so that you've got you now forming a community within the community there that's primarily oral. And then I take it at some point there's a trans well maybe a transition or alongside the sharing that you're doing to 
to expand within the community, there's a discipleship element that comes alongside of it with people who connect. Is that the next step for yes. these communities? And, and it's very much a discipleship making movement in a sense that, you know, one week as we're sharing a specific story, the story is being shared with the indigenous, we're, I'm sorry, we're working with a community of indigenous leaders. And as a, share is being share, a story is being shared, mm-hmm. excuse me, with an indigenous leader, the indigenous leader is then going and taking that to a community and sharing it the same week with other people. And the hope is that at some point, those people who are being ministered to would then fall into the category of a next generation indigenous leader who then Got goes it. and shares down the line. Yeah. Um, so we're, you know, at some, in some levels, it's uh it's almost like a, uh, a you know, pyramid scheme mm-hmm. per se right. in the way that we're trying to reach people by sharing with them, enabling them to share with others, and then em- encouraging them and empowering them to go do the same. So um, so that means that you're, some of your indigenous workers will eventually come out of the very oral communities that you were originally seeking to reach. And I'm assuming that your indigenous workers who start the cycle are people who aren't just in an oral context, and then it gets passed on yes. into the oral context. I would say most of the indigenous leadership that we work with uh, have some level of, of training, some level of theological training, and mm-hmm. some level of um, uh, some level of, of literacy or awareness of reading and writing. And, mm-hmm. and that's I think that's another thing that's that's worthwhile in mentioning is that when we talk about oral cultures, there's really kind of two groups of people. Oral people. Um, exist along a continuum. And there's oral people who come from uh, communities where there is no written text for their specific language. Mm -hmm. That would be a primarily oral group or oral culture, I should say. They uh, are oral communicators by necessity because there's no other way for them to communicate. Right. Got it. Then the others are, are oral communities are primarily by preference Mm -hmm. because many of them can read and write at some level. But traditionally, culturally, they've they've not been readers. It's not the way that they pr- uh, prefer to communicate with one another. It's not the pr- way that they prefer to learn or to transmit information with their family, friends, and, and community. So uh, that raises interesting. So some of your indigenous workers, I take it they must have come out of some of these oral communities and become more literate and then are going back because if – if a community is strictly oral and there's no written language, um, then and the indigenous worker who works with them needs to work orally with them. He needs to know the language that they're operating in. Correct. So, so how does how does that happen if the community is a tight oral community? If it's a tight oral community and there's no individual within that community that is able to to break out at some level and and engage with us in their native language. Um, that can then be passed to to this to their community in their own native language. Then you, uh, we're probably it, there's probably not an inroad into that community as as easily as there would be another community. Got so um, there are there are sometimes opportunities where certain uh, communities speak. They don't speak the same heart language, but they might speak the same. They so, might have one second language that they speak it. the same. So there, we're seeing that some in Sudan and. Egypt, where there's this overlap between standard Arabic speakers or Egyptian Arabic speakers mm-hmm. and Sudanese Arabic speakers, mm-hmm. and the Egyptian Arabic speakers are stepping up to take um, the gospel into these Sudanese Arabic uh, locales. And does it ever happen that you get someone who's out of these tight oral communities, but they have emerged from those communities and have 
come into a larger societal context, and so they become at least potentially available to go back into those communities. With their I'm not sure if that's ever happened at Spoken. Interesting. Um, there are other there are other organizations who focus on orality. Faith comes by hearing is one. Uh-huh. Um, y- YWAM is is uh, at some level focused on orality and and working in oral Bible translation things like that alongside us in uh, in an initiative that we have going with every tribe every nation uh, collaborative that's attempting to. Um, accomplish uh, a, an oral translation in every known language by 2033. Um, or excuse me, oral. They're trying to uh, they're trying to translate the scriptures into every or, every known language by 2033. Of the, those languages that are left to translate, many of them are oral. So spoken, faith comes by hearing, and YWAM have come together to translate. Uh, into those oral languages, hopefully by 2033. So and I take it these are oral recordings that then are, are replayed through. Correct. A, yeah. So, so on an audio device. So we've got yep. what's called a Mega Voice MP3 player that's solar got powered it. that people can use in, in in their community. About ten people could probably stand around and hear it clearly. Interesting. Um, so I, to answer your initial question, yeah. though, I don't know if other organizations have dealt with that. I'm not sure that Spoken has uh-huh. uh, in particular, but it'd be interesting to talk to some of our operations guys and see what the story is on that. And then does. Um, does the situation come to a point where you've got the oral translation, they're functioning orally in the culture? Is there ever an effort to bring in some a group like a Wycliffe or someone like that to say, all right, now let's record and uh, by record, I don't mean orally, let's record and write down the language and get them a hard translation or is the orality good enough? Um, Spoken's perspective, since our slice of the pie is the orality mm-hmm. slice, uh, we're not focused on what comes down the pipe. So if okay. if somebody wants to do that down the line, they certainly could, I suppose. Uh, we haven't given it that level of thought yet because we haven't gotten to that point I in see. our translations yet. The the tra- we have one translation in North Africa right now that's that is the New Testament will be completed in the next couple of weeks, okay. and we're starting to work on an Old Testament shortly after. Um, and that's the furthest we've gotten in any translation. We've got about six or seven translation projects up and running right now, to the best mm. of my knowledge. Mm. And we're working on opening up more with the help of uh, Faith Comes by Hearing and YWAM. Okay. Now, the natural question is, so you go in, you have about 30 stories or whatever. Are you working with a whole gospel in telling the stories, or are you jumping around? Uh, say that. How would you say well, that? Well, so uh, do you walk in and say, well, we're, we're going to translate the gospel of Mark, and those are going to be the stories that we're going to tell? Or do you move around just various stories about Jesus? Or so how does that work? For an oral Bible translation, we would work through entire books. Okay. For the pastoral development program, we might hop around. Okay. Interesting. So um, so uh, which books are the are the biggies for you guys when you get started? Uh, to my knowledge, the... the our priority is starting with the book of Mark. I could be wrong on that. Okay. When I was uh, in Egypt a couple of weeks ago, we were listening to a back translation of their, their book of Romans hmm. uh, that was translated in a dialect of Arabic that's common across North Africa. Oh, wow. Um, but but I, to the best of my knowledge, I think we start in the book of Mark. Okay. Almost always. Makes sense. So, so you introduce them to a gospel. And uh, they're getting a little bit of Old Testament to get that part of the story. I'm taking it to probably be parts of what Genesis and other Correct. parts of uh, of the Old Testament that are key to the development of that story. Um, and then, and then, uh, do you tend to stay in the Gospels and then go to the Epistles, or do you go to the Epistles pretty quickly? How does that work, or does it depend? 
Well, t- the the progression typically there's three cycles, and okay. one cycle typically lasts a year in the okay. pastoral development program. And so what we would do is we would confine the stories to the the Pentateuch and the Gospels for that first cycle. Right. Um, if the cycle runs, if the group is if they're they're running across issues and being able to meet and being able to come together and tell stories the way that we would affect them, that we would expect them to be able to, mm-hmm. um, then we might uh, drag that cycle on for 18 months, perhaps. It's mm. not necessarily a hard and fast right. one year. It depends on the, the context. So you're reading how the, what the reaction is Correct. as you're doing what you're doing. So if it if cycle one runs 18 months mm-hmm. because of circumstances, or maybe the countries come across a civil war, like in Myanmar, perhaps, yeah, sure. um, they might not be able to get through cycle one in a year, that might push them a year and a half or two years, in which case we would stay in the Pentateuch and the gospel narratives for a year and a half, two years. And then we would move on after we've covered about 30 stories from the Pentateuch in the gospels um, and about 10 community development stories, 40 stories total. We would then move on to the second, which would be the prophets and the Pauline epistles. Mm. And then after the after the next forty stories, we would then move on to you know the wisdom literature, general epistles, and revelation. I see. So so Romans comes in in the second cycle. Uh, it sh- yes, it should. Okay, all right. So that's interesting how that works. Um, so I, I'm just I was curious to to know or to see if you get to a certain point where you go, well, it might be helpful. I mean, if, if they're working orally, they're used to oral. And, of course, one of the things that the ancient world used to say is we like the living voice better than something mm-hmm. written down on a page. So mm-hmm. um, I, I like to tell people, well, the reason why it took so long to write the Gospels is because you had the apostles as your witnesses. Mm-hmm. And the living voice was more valued than something written down. It was only as the apostles began to die off and you were losing access to them, right. it became important to record what it was that they were saying. For sure. Yeah. So, and and I imagine that I guess the transition for an oral community, if you wanted to give them a written Bible, would be the reverse, which would be they're they're functioning and functional in an oral context. So, in one sense, they don't need it. But on the other hand, if you decided that you wanted to record it and pass it on and give them another way to process it, absolutely, you would do it in a written form where they can where they can ponder it a little more. Right. And and there has. Uh, there has been some discussion about that in the office in terms of once our recordings are complete and the oral Bible has been translated, or mm-hmm. we have translated the scriptures into an oral form for a specific language, uh, what does that look like? And could people then, and theoretically people could, I mean, I suppose anybody could take whatever we've translated and put it onto paper yep. and give it to a, a culture should they need it or want it. Yep. Um, we would we would not be the ones who would specifically go about doing that because right. we feel that our slice of the pie is the orality slice. Right. And we want to focus on that, but we would not certainly not be against anybody doing that. And the challenge, of course, is is that you would also have to be instructing the people and moving from an oral, from an oral context to a context in which they can read Whatever, whatever it is you produce, which is its own challenge. Right. And, you know, for better or for worse, however you want to, I mean, right. most most countries in reporting their literacy statistics uh-huh. are not uh, forthright in the way that, uh-huh. or perhaps they elevate their literacy. It's, we're assuming, I guess, at some level, but it's a confident assumption that uh, most countries, in order to save, you know, especially in an honor-shame culture, in order to save face, they're reporting higher literacy statistics than actually exist right. because somebody can actually read the words on a page right. um, out loud. Right. My, my wife, for example, who's lovely, this uh-huh. is no 
you know, jab yeah. at her. Yeah. She grew up in Russia. She's a missionary kid. She can read Russian just fine. Yeah. Now, she doesn't necessarily know what it means. She can't necessarily, uh, she can't use it. Uh, in any sort of, she can't examine it in any sort of critical capacity. She's not going to read a Russian Bible, even though she can read a Russian Bible. Uh And so I think at some level, um, when you're thinking about oral context uh, and oral cultures, just because a culture can read or just because they have the ability to, um, you know, recite the words from a page doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be able to critically engage with it in, in, at the level that would uh, foster any type of spiritual growth. Yeah. And again, I'm thinking about the analogy of discussions about literacy that exist. And when we talk about the New Testament and, and one of the issues is so define literacy for me. In other words, what counts as being literate? Right. Uh, what level are we talking about? Because there's a whole spate of being, you know, highly, we might consider highly literate versus being basically literate. And, and for sure. uh, you know, and and so there's always a range that you're dealing with. My, my guess is the governments will take any form of literacy they can to make it count for literacy. Right. And it's, and it's also hard across uh, cultures and across nations to determine what the standard is, because each, just to your point, yeah. each country has a different standard for measuring and reporting literacy. So, mm-hmm. uh, so if you're reporting from a, a bunch of different standards, uh, it doesn't quite make sense to to necessarily just say, oh, 40% is 40%, because that 40% may look a whole lot different than the 40% that you would see in a different culture. So basically what I'm hearing is there's like a three-year cycle that goes through, and then do you repeat the cycle? I mean, what happens when you're done after three years? After three years, um, there will be a process, there will be like a culminate, like a ceremony per se, like almost like a graduation, uh, where you'll celebrate the culmination of a three-year program, Mm -hmm. uh, and then you will invite those people to start their own programs and and just run it organically themselves and huh. and uh, carry that that tradition that they've experienced forward, um, and that's uh, and then oftentimes through that those relationships cultivating new relationships and new uh, communities that either are similar dialects or completely different perhaps where you can replicate the same program across like for example our our work in northern nigeria spilled over into northern ghana recently mm-hmm. because of some relationships that existed there mm-hmm. um and so our ceo went out to to northern nigeria a couple weeks ago and he f- closed out and celebrated the successful completion of a three-year cycle with one program in northern nigeria while also uh observing what was happening in in northern ghana and getting excited about the the new creation of uh pastoral development groups that operate in Northern Ghana. Hmm. And that's just the pastoral development program. There's also the oral Bible translation piece, which is a little bit different. And that would be for those uh, cultures that don't have a written text um, to, to even translate from or to record audibly into a device. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our hope is that at some point we can start with oral Bible translation in a culture that does not have God's word. And then it would spill into pastoral development where we could use that oral Bible translation to disciple people in God's ways through through truth, mm-hmm. you know, story songs, dramas, things like that, that have been pulled from God's word. And then as ministries are established and people are effectively growing and, and being discipled in Christ, we could then 
coach other ministries how to do the same work effectively amongst those those areas. So there's, I mean, there's really three ways that we operate, and sometimes it's a little bit hard to parse out the details between, and there's a lot of overlapping details between them as well. So, but keeping them straight in your head oftentimes is difficult to do. So how long is how long has this spoken worldwide been operating? Since 2005, our, Ed Weaver, our CEO, uh, was he's a he's a business guy really. He's not a, a ministry leader per se. Uh, now he is, but but when he started this in 2005, he wasn't. And he had a friend. His his father. He'd grown up northwest Arkansas. His dad was a Bible professor at mm. John Brown University. Mm. His dad was a DTS grad. Got his THD and his THM here. Okay. And um, and he uh, so he'd grown up around ministry, but he was in business. And and one of his business partners, as they were finishing up a relationship, at one point said, "You know, I really think you should go into ministry." He said, I just, yeah, I just don't know what I would do, though. And it, his partner said, well, you know, you're into technology because that's what they've been working yeah. with. He slid an iPod across the table that he just purchased for his daughters for Christmas and said, why don't you look into how this might be used uh, across cultures and missions or something? So he started doing some research, and he realized that one of the biggest problems in missions is that two-thirds of the world's population either cannot or does not read. Yep. And, and although there have been incredible efforts in missions over the years— Unintentionally, we've overlooked this group because so much of our effort has been focused on text-based Western approaches. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, I'm very familiar with this. Um, uh, one of the people who I used to do a ton of interviews with, John Ankerberg, is very um, interested in this kind of work. And it, he was sharing with me on a regular basis how the technology was developing and uh, even, even um, uh, the it isn't quite in the same audience, but the idea of you can speak in one language and this thing will immediately mm-hmm. translate it into mm-hmm. another so that you can get to that oral level quickly, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So um, just very, very fascinating work. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, anything that we haven't covered that we ought to have covered? Oh, boy. There's a whole lot that <laughs> that, you know, there's a whole lot that exists in this realm that I feel like is is untouched, but, uh, but I feel like we've done a pretty sufficient job of being able to touch the bases today. So, okay. So yeah. tell us a little bit, if people want to find out about Spoken Worldwide, how would you do that? You, you could, uh, you could go to spoken.org. Uh, mm-hmm. if you had any questions you wanted to learn more, I'd be happy to engage with you. Um, my email address is Ted Crump at spoken.org. Okay. Um, so that's, those are two ways that you can learn more or engage with somebody within the organization. Well, that sounds great. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us and to kind of give us an introduction into the world of orality. And like I say, part of it, the reason it fascinates me is because it does overlap with a very important For sure. uh, discussion that we have about the nature of the Gospels and a misimpression that is often created that because you've had a long time between the event and the recording that somehow you've lost the story. Right. And that... Just not true. Just not true. Yeah. That And that's... I have a lecture called Minding the Gap that's about that entire thing. And so it's um, it, it's good to see um, that orality still lives. That's right. And uh, that there was a way of getting the gospel to these cultures. It's very fascinating work that you're doing, and we thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. It's great to be here. And we appreciate you being a part of the table, and we hope you'll join us again soon. If you want to see other podcasts, you can go to voice.dts.edu slash table podcast and that will introduce you to the variety of episodes now over 500 episodes on topics that range from well wherever god and culture touch so we hope you'll join us again soon and we thank you for being with us thanks for listening to the table podcast dallas theological seminary teach truth love well
This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.